2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. <clears throat> For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you! <clears throat> Yea, what clearing of yourselves! Yea, what indignation! Yea, what fear! Yea, what vehement desire! Yea, what zeal! Yea, what revenge! In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word to our souls this morning. For those of you who have not been with us for the last few weeks, we've been doing a series of messages regarding the important subject of repentance. Repentance is a word <clears throat> rarely heard uh, in modern American culturized Christian pulpits. I do not say this uh, as standing back in a self-righteous attitude and condemning others, but saying to the grief and shame of those who profess to be Christians that we could call ourselves repentance and deny the vital aspect of repentance. Brethren, it is a part of the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to leave it out is to leave out a significant and an important issue regarding the souls of men. We have defined repentance as a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. A change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. We've also seen that repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance, like faith, begins in the life of one whose heart has been opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repentance, like faith, is a gift from God. Nevertheless, it is the responsibility of men to repent and to believe. As we saw in our earlier studies in Mark chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ came after John the Baptist preaching, Repent ye and believe the gospel. And so it is. <clears throat> we have continued looking at various aspects of repentance. And we come this morning to verse 11. We've spent two weeks in this passage, verses 8 through 10 thus far, and this morning we take up verse 11. Paul says in that verse that the Corinthians sorrowed after a godly sort. Now what does he mean by this? What is a godly sort? Well, in our first 
uh, message out of this passage, we saw that the, in, in these verses, the Greek actually says that they repented or they sorrowed according to God. According to God is what is literally being said. <clears throat> and we, uh, we have a glimpse into this by carefully considering what he has said in verses 8 through 10. There is the sorrow that is worked in the hearts of sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God that brings men, women, and children to understand their lost condition before Him. They come to a clear recognition that He is holy, that He is righteous, and that He is just, and that we in ourselves, we in our natural state, are wicked and in desperate need of pardon. And a godly sorrow is not one that is simply the guilt that the flesh can churn up when we're caught at something. It's not simply feeling bad, having not met our own standards, having not met the standards of others as such. It isn't just feeling bad because we've made a mess of things. It isn't just having a complex and saying, oh, I'm just worse than everybody else. Worldly sorrow ends in death because the heart doesn't ultimately close with the Lord Jesus Christ. Godly sorrow is the sorrow that emanates from the human heart when the Word of God is made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit in the heart and in the mind of the individual and he comes to recognize that indeed his heart is wicked wicked above all things incurably sick as the prophet Jeremiah says deceitful above all things desperately wicked our Lord Jesus Christ himself affirmed this when he said out of the heart come wicked and evil thoughts adulteries, murders, fornications, all of the, the things that he lists there. And that is not an exhaustive list. When the Spirit of God brings us to a clear understanding, not that we've simply failed, but that we have rebelled against a holy God, against a good God, then we grieve. We grieve. We sorrow. We see ourselves for what we are in the light of who He is. And a godly sorrow, stirred up by the Spirit of God, brings a man, a woman, a child to change their mind. They'll change their mind about their sin. They'll change their mind about themselves they will change their minds about God, as we have already studied. So, <clears throat> in our context, Paul is delighted by the news that Titus has brought him regarding the Corinthians. Paul's previous letter to them was clearly used of the Lord to bring them to a godly sorrow. And this Spirit-led sorrow moved their hearts to a repentance and repentance unto salvation now in this verse 
Verse 11, the Spirit of God displays for us the fruit of true repentance. And that's our primary head today. I normally have three or sometimes four. Today we have one because we want to spend all of our time in one place. And we want to see the fruits of repentance enumerated. God's Word is revealed to us that repentance is a work of God's grace in His beloved children. And repentance always, brethren, do not miss this, repentance always bears fruit. This is what we want to see today. There are people that come uh, to elders in their churches. They have to me, I know to Brother Stephen, to others over the years, they say, I don't know if my faith is real. I don't know if my repentance is real. <clears throat> well, thankfully, the Lord has not left us in some deep, engulfing mystery. He sets forth in the pages of Scripture time and time again what real faith looks like, what real repentance looks like. And we have an example of that before us here this morning. <clears throat> Repentance always brings forth an abundant harvest of fruit. And one of the reasons we want to take the time to understand this is because sometimes people confuse the fruit of repentance with repentance itself. Repentance includes sorrow, but you can be sorry without repenting. So we must understand what Paul has set before us this morning, God being our helper. Now, if in fact the Spirit and the Word of God have worked repentance unto life in our hearts, we will see the kind of changes set forth in verse 11 and the kind of fruit displayed for us there. We will find it <clears throat> in ourselves. We won't have to go digging around for it. It will be there. So, there are only two primary heads to consider under this particular notion this morning of repentance and its fruit, and it's very simple. The change of thinking and the change of life. Change of thinking and a change of life. This is what Paul is setting before us as he exalts in the fact that the Corinthians have repented. He now commends them. Titus has said... Your letter was used of God. They repented. They changed their minds. And Paul rejoices. So may we rejoice as we go to the Word of God and by His uh, Spirit's guidance find what true repentance looks like. But first of all, it is a change of thinking. Paul's first letter was a searching and a probing epistle ferreting out the issues among the Corinthians that were wrong. They were out of order. And there was sin among them. And he calls them as an apostle of God to repent of their sins. There's a, a wretched case of immorality going on in that church. And <clears throat> we don't have any indication whatsoever. And it would appear that uh, this very chapter uh, gives evidence that 
the, the Corinthians themselves were free of that particular act. No one else had been involved in that act of immorality, but the problem was their indifference to the sin among them. They saw this incredibly vile, wicked act among them, and they acted like, well, not a big deal. But then there's, there's a footnote to this. The modern American assemblies of Christ seem to be one large Corinthian body. They look at the wickedness among them and they're utterly indifferent. Now, certainly there are exceptions. I don't mean to paint with such a broad brush that I would say that I'm excluding any kind of good and solid churches. Certainly not. But what I'm saying is that as a whole, we tend to look right at wickedness and go, mm-hmm, well, that's bad. Sure hope somebody does something about this. Sure hope someone straightens this out. And our indifference is like a cancer eating a hole in the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, this was the case at Corinth. A wicked deed ongoing. And apparently the man involved in this is still actively taking part in the life of the church. And Paul sent them a powerful, piercing letter telling them to deal with this sin. And he dealt with several other things. Apparently, the Lord, in His mercy, because we don't always see this, but in the Lord's mercy, Paul's words in that epistle went home to the hearts of the Corinthians and they changed their minds they repented there was a change of mind that ultimately led to a change of action they put the man out of the congregation therefore Paul blesses the Lord Paul is exuberant regarding their obedience and that's what verse 11 is all about he says, Behold, this self-same thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, according to the will of God. It wasn't simply a fleshly sorrow that comes from a reprimand. It was a heartfelt agony, recognizing rebellion against God, and a desire to turn from it. And this is how it falls out. It says, What carefulness it wrought in you. What carefulness it wrought in you. Now this word carefulness uh, originally meant haste. Then it came to mean eager, earnest. When a child is ready to eat, or when you're on a long trip and they're ready to be there. They show their eagerness. They want to be there. And they keep telling you. And they keep asking you, how long before we get there? How long before we get there? There's an eagerness to see grandma, grandpa, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, the family member, 
or whatever's at the end waiting for them. There's an eager desire in their hearts that's driving them. And this is what Paul is saying. There was an eagerness about you Corinthians. An eagerness worked in you. There was an earnestness. In other words, when the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, Paul's apostolic epistle, smote their hearts, there was a commitment, there was an eager, earnest desire to get things right. Now, if you've ever repented, if you have sorrowed after a godly sort, there is an eagerness in your heart to make things right. Children, those of you that are raised in godly homes, <clears throat> and I know that that's the case with many of you here, raised in Christian homes, you've been taught, no doubt, by your parents, when you err, when you sin, to ask forgiveness, to say, I'm sorry, but I must say to you, saying that you're sorry is telling someone how you feel. That's not the same thing as being eager to get things right. Real repentance. God worked repentance. Moves in the heart in such a way that in your thinking... There is a burning desire to get things right. Simply mumbling, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, and then let's get it over with, let's have it done. That's clear display of fleshly, worldly sorrow. It isn't the kind being worked by God. While it may be the most difficult thing in the world to change your mind, and to repent. There will be something that moves your heart to do so. I met a man who was one of the most enthusiastic, robust Christians that I had ever known. He was the kind of man that when he walked in the room, I mean, he just kind of glowed. He was like a kind of a, a nuclear reactor. You could tell when Brother Jim was, was in the building. He came in and he sat down. He never left without talking to someone about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was always in somebody's face in a good way to talk with them about the Lord. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, he must have always been that kind of fella. And just this exuberant, overflowing type. And uh, then I heard his testimony. And uh, he had not always been that way. As a matter of fact, he had owned a, a business in town and had a comp uh, 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 another business that was competition for him. And <clears throat> these men lied about one another constantly. They lied about each other's businesses. They did what they could to, to stab one another in the back to get business and contracts. You can imagine things like that happening in business. Doesn't happen, does it? I'm sure it does every day. But what was amazing is this man having his own company had for years despised that man who had the other business. And, it, and the other business wasn't that far away. And the Lord began to deal with Jim. And he began to make him realize his wickedness and his sins 
And one of the first things that came to his heart and his mind was the wretched way he had used his tongue regarding this man across town. Or, or not too far away. And he, uh, <clears throat> he knew that as the Lord dealt with him, he had to get right with that man. And for years, he lied about him. And he knew in his heart, he knew in his heart, he wasn't sincere about his profession of Christ. Unless he went and got right with that fellow. And he said it was one of the hardest things in all of his life. But he got in the car, he said he felt like he was in a dream. Started it up, drove over there, it just was surreal. He got there, he asked the man to come outside with him, he looked down at his feet, he looked at the man, he looked down at his feet. And he said, he was standing there saying, I know what I need to say and I can't get my mouth open. Finally, after the man was kind of getting embarrassed by the silence as they looked at each other for a while, Jim said to him, I have to confess to you that the Lord Jesus Christ has been dealing with me and I've hated you for years and I have lied about you. He said he couldn't get through it without tears running down his cheeks. And when he looked up, he said the man had his head down and instead of responding in anger, he was weeping as well. And he wanted to know more about what was happening to Jim. Now, and you live long enough, you begin to find out these are not just preachers' stories. This is how God deals with men. And it was choking in his throat. He knew it was the right thing to do. But there was an eagerness. There was an eagerness to be right with that man. And as hard as it was, there was the turning of the ignition, the key in the ignition, the driving the car, the getting out, the asking the man outside. But before it was over, they were embracing each other in the parking lot. Real repentance is eager to be right. Husbands, when you speak to your wives in a wicked way, just a, well, sorry. That's, I'm glad uh, that you would say such a thing, and I'm sure she's happy to hear such a thing, but don't stop there. Get right. Repentance doesn't stop at just saying, I feel bad about what I've done. I'm sorry. There's an eagerness in the heart of those alive in the Spirit to get right whatever they need to do. This is why Paul is commending them. There was sin going on there, and when it finally came home to you that you were sinning against God, an earnest desire built up in your heart to get things right. They had taken Paul's rebuke. They had examined their crime against heaven seriously. And they were eagerly seeking to make things right with God and with Paul. And so they disciplined the man 
that was in that assembly. The next thing that is said is, Yea, what clearing of yourselves? What clearing of yourselves? Now, what does, what does he mean by that? Now, this is a Greek word that was originally a legal term. That means a speech in defense of oneself. We get the word apologize from it. Apologia. But it isn't the way we normally use it in modern English. When we say apologize today, we mean to tell someone that we're sorry for something that we've done. But in that day, the idea was to make a defense for oneself. <clears throat> the Corinthians had heard the voice of God in the epistle of Paul. And instead of continuing in their sin, they wanted to be clear of the charge. There's sin going on, Paul says. It's in your midst and you're acting like it's not even there. And as they changed their minds in true repentance, there follows a desire to clear their names. We're Christians. We bear the name of Christ. We need to do what Christ would have his people do. They no longer wanted to be associated with their indifference. We were dining with friends once and the wife of our friend, a dear friend, <clears throat> said, well, I've got a problem with this and this, and I've tried to, it was a sin, and she said, I've, I've tried to wrestle with it, you know, for years, but, you know, that's just the way it is, that's just the way I am, that's just the way I'm going to be till Jesus comes back. And she was content then to just let it go. But then this is not the fruit of repentance. Repentance says, as a child of God, either that thing goes or I do. But that's it. <laughs> there's a battle here and there's not going to be any friendliness between me and my sin. <laughs> now, it may kill me, but I'd rather die in the battle than to go on bearing the name of Christ and living in clear, defined sin. Now, I'm not saying that we can get sinless in this life, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when the Spirit of God gives you a new heart, something radical has happened. When you were lost, you were at peace with your sins. Now, you may not have been at peace because of them, but you were at peace with your sins. You lived in them, you did what you wanted to do. And you were at war with God. The very nature of regeneration, the very nature of being born of God's Spirit, changes a sinner so that they are now at peace with God and at war with your sin. You see, this is what comes out of regenerating grace and repentance. There's a change of mind. And I can't live comfortably with this anymore. Lord, grant me the grace to stay in the battle 
until there's only one of us standing at the end of the day. There was a desire to clear themselves. We don't want to be known as a church turning its face from sin in its midst. The Corinthians changed their minds. And this was a fruit of it. Paul goes on to say, Yea, what indignation! What indignation! And the word indignation means strong opposition. Displeasure with something. To be indignant is a righteous anger. Now this is a holy anger against one's sin and against one's self. Now it's very easy for us to get upset about other people's sins, isn't it? We don't have any problem looking at the people around us, finding out what's wrong with them, and condemning it. We're very good at that. But taking the Word of God and humbling ourselves before our Father in Heaven and asking Him to reveal to ourselves what we are is very often a, a practice to which many of us that profess to be His are strangers. But friend, if you know something of what I'm talking about, when the Word of God comes home, when the Spirit of God deals with your heart, there's an indignation. It's a holy fruit of changing your mind. This is not merely a fleshly disappointment that we haven't met our standards or somebody else's. Well, they're not going to think I'm a real spiritual guy anymore if I do this. That's just the flesh. Or because I've done this. This is not the bitterness or the regret or the frustration that we feel because we've humiliated ourselves. And you know what that feels like, don't you? You've done something really absurd, something really dumb, whatever term you would put on it. You go home and you're going to beat yourself. Ah, I can't believe this. I'm so dumb. I'm so... How could I have done this? Well, this is not the indignation Paul is talking about as such. Lost people feel that. We can... Anybody can feel disappointment and humiliation and, oh, being angry with ourselves because I, oh, they, they wanted me to do this in class and I blew it again or my, my husband wanted me to do this or my wife wanted me to try that and, and, I, and I just blew it again and so I'm, I'm angry with myself. That's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is going after here is a vexation. A displeasure with one's self that arises from understanding that we have set ourselves in opposition against God. I'm sinning against a good and a holy sovereign. What a sinner I am. It's not self-pity as such. It is a true indignation with our crimes against heaven. The psalmist puts it this way, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. 
Well, we in and of ourselves don't hate evil. We hate evil that, that bothers our categories of comfort. But we don't hate evil that we like. When you're dealing with people that are addicted to various things, whether it be alcohol or drugs, people that are uh, grappling with some terrible habit, overeating, pornography, whatever. There are people that get upset because, well, they're making a mess, they're causing some problems. But that's not the indignation of understanding that God hates evil and so should you. And if you are his child, when you see that you're doing something that you likely should be hating, it is a displeasure with that attitude and a genuine heartfelt hatred toward that sin because it's sin, not because it's gotten me in trouble. Do you see the difference? We become discontent with ourselves, not because of our pride, but because we see, we sense the foulness of our sin and the way that we have dishonored our God. This is the burning shame and, and exasperation that Job felt once he saw himself and his sin. Oh, things fell in on him, and he said, Oh, that I've never been born. And then he began to complain. Oh, all the things that have happened to me. Oh, where is God? Where is he? If I could just find him, I'd bring my case to him. Oh, I'd come and I'd set my arguments before him. I can't find him. I haven't been bad enough to deserve this. I've done this. I've done that. I've been a pretty good guy, Job says. And then the Lord revealed himself to Job. And Job put his hand over his mouth. And he got quiet. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? But this is not just old King James English and poetic language. Job saw himself in the light of God. Now the question is, have you? Well, I was raised in a Christian home. Good. Praise God. Thank God every day for a mom and dad that love you and have taught you of Christ. Praise the Lord. But do you see yourself as God sees you? Do you see yourself in the light of His Word? Not men's standards, certainly not your own, but God's Word. When Job did, he realized he was something. He hadn't just done something, but he was something that was vile. That's why you do those wicked things. That's why you'll lie. That's why you will do any sin. In and of yourself, the flesh loves its darkness. Job goes on to say, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see it thee. 
Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself. And we don't think in terms like that, do we? In fact, we, we give the money, uh, we give the government money to teach the children in government schools how wonderful they are. Well, you're just wonderful. If you just learn to love yourself a little bit more, life would be even better. We'll pay psychologists, psychiatrists, 75 bucks an hour, however much they get nowadays. I think it's gone up. For us to find out that the only problem with this is that we just don't esteem ourselves enough. Learn to love yourself and you can love everybody else. Well, that, that's not out of the Bible. The Word of God makes it exceedingly plain that when men and women see their sins and see themselves, their hearts sound like Job. I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm going to try to saddle you to a particular experience. I'm not going to say if there are tears or how many tears there have to be. I'm not going to say how long you have to walk around with you feeling bad about yourself. We're not here to define everyone's experience. We're here to say, when the Spirit of God tells you what you are, you know it. And you will respond to that because you will see something vile. And because of that, there will be a genuine indignation toward that. Ezra understood this and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to thee. My God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up under the heavens. Ezekiel understood it. And he said unto Israel, Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abomination. Friend, have you ever seen yourself a sinner worthy of God's just damnation have you ever understood what it means to be lost have you ever understood or known have you ever sensed your alienation from God and hated your sin against that good God that's different from asking someone did you walk an aisle did you pray a prayer did you write something in the front of your Bible There is a holy indignation that comes from repentance because there's a change of mind. I used to think I was pretty good. Now I know what I am. This is why the publican smote his breast, brethren. This is why he smote his breast and he would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.